lovers, welcome to Get Real, a podcast hosted by the National Animal Interest Alliance through which we'll have deeply honest conversations about animal research so we can learn together and make compassionate choices about our medical future together. Welcome to episode 31 of Get Real. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. And today we're going to talk about something that will probably make you uncomfortable. But if you really love animals, then you need to hear it. Because today we stop ignoring the truth about how new treatments make it to our medicine cabinets and face the hard facts together on Get Real. Happy New Year, animal lovers. Today, we're going to talk about something that most people have never discussed publicly and don't really completely understand, and that is the difference between basic animal research and drug development and animal testing. We have a very important guest today to help us break this down. She is board certified in toxicology, and she's got over a decade of experience working directly with animals in this part of the field of drug development. She's a member of the American College of Toxicology, a member of the American Board of Toxicology, and other affiliations with toxicology that she's accumulated over her career. I have decided to keep her anonymous for this episode because I want us to be able to have a conversation about the really deep truths of drug development and testing with research animals, because it's never happened before. And there's a lot of erroneous information out there, and that leaves all of us, the people in the public who are looking to the research field to develop drugs for us, sort of in a quandary about what to think and how to move forward. So let me start by introducing our guest today. Thank you for joining us on Get Real. Thank you for having me. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to spell this out for us. It is very complicated because research is a continuum. The first part of the research process is just studying living systems to try and understand how biology really works. And it's so complicated that we still know very little. But we get enough clues about a certain system or a certain aspect of a certain system that we start to see how something works when it's functioning properly. And that's the foundational basic research that informs everything else, right? Because if you don't know how something works and how it's put together, when it's working properly, then you can't recognize what's gone wrong when it's not working properly. And so this ability to recognize what might be causing a particular disease really depends on first understanding how things work when they're healthy. And so that is really basic research. And that's what's happening in academic centers all over the world. Once enough clues are figured out and disseminated around the universe, that's when the drug development people can come in and say, okay, it looks like based on everything that's been studied and published, that people with disease X probably have disease X because they can't make protein X. And if we can develop a drug that acts just like protein X and give it to these people, then maybe we can treat them and they won't have the symptoms of disease X anymore. That really is the story of drug development and the thousands of medications we have available to us today. And it all involves animals. But what people don't understand is the difference between how they're involved in basic research and how they're involved specifically in the drug development process. And that's what I want to talk about today, because we have spoken at length about basic foundational research on Get Real. What we have never done with someone who's actually worked directly with the animals, not as a veterinarian who kind of cares for them, you know, when things come up, but as a caregiver and a scientist who's working directly with them through the entire process, no one has ever spelled out what the process is and what the animals actually experience. And that's what I want to cover today. What is the drug development process 
Where are the animals involved? Where are the people involved? What really happens? Thank you, Cindy. The first thing that happens in drug development is the discovery and lead optimization phase. And this is where we are creating new drugs and bringing them to the drug development process initially. This includes using organized chip data, in vitro data, cell-based assays. There's a lot of high put through scheming and computer modeling, a lot of machine learning and advanced technology we have these days that is heavily used in the discovery part. Right. So in this phase, you're kind of evaluating how protein X is supposed to look so that you can make something to act like it. Yeah. The chemists run this phase. And then you also said lead optimization. What is that? We optimize the compounds that we choose to move forward, modifying the compounds themselves to make targets more druggable. I see. All right. I think I understand. So the first part is sort of evaluating the molecular structure necessary for this drug in order to mimic this thing we're trying to make that is missing, let's say, in these people. And then once you identify compounds that are close, modifying them to model even better this thing you're trying to make. So basically, this is about nailing down what you believe will be the best molecular structure for a drug moving forward so that it will actually act as fully as possible like protein X. So now we have a compound that we think is dead on. So then what happens? From the discovery and lead optimization phase, the drug goes into preclinical efficacy testing. And this is where we determine if it actually works. There's a high number of animals that are used that are disease models. So these are animals that have genes that have been knocked out or diseases created within the animal to create a model of the disease that we're trying to target. Mostly mice are used and they could be bred to be these disease models. Yeah. I mean, we hear a lot about this in cancer studies, right? They have these mice they call PDX mice, patient-derived xenograft mice, where they actually take tumor tissue from people suffering from a particular cancer. They put it into the mice and then they try these drugs out to see if that's going to work. I mean, is, is that what we're talking about here in the preclinical phase? Yeah, and these are all very historically used models, so a lot of historical data. Interesting. All right. We have designed a compound to act like protein X. We have tweaked it to optimize it to be the right compound, at least based on what we know so far. Now we want to know if it works, so we have put it into mice that we have given the disease, either genetically or some other way. And we're putting this compound that we've designed into these animals to see if it actually does anything to help them with their disease. Then what happens? If the compound is efficacious and we're seeing a really high effectiveness of it in the mouse and the disease model, it will then move on to safety. And this is what we call the non-clinical safety or non-clinical toxicology phase. This is the pivotal and definitive safety stage that determines whether the drug will go into clinical trials for the first time. Right. And let me just say, so people understand, when we say non-clinical, we're almost always talking about animals. When we say clinical in this process, then we're talking about people. That's important because the bulk of the testing for these drugs before we can release them to the population happens in actual human beings. This is important. Let's think about this. So you guys just designed a drug 
based on computer modeling and all these things, right? <laughs> Cell cultures and high throughput screening and all the things you mentioned. And then you put it into some mice that were sick with the disease you're looking to treat and looks like it's working in mice. Now we want to test it in people in the clinical trials, but we can't just drop this experimental thing that we just made into a bunch of human beings. Uh, and it starts with healthy volunteers, and we'll talk about that, without first making sure that it's not going to kill somebody. And I want to say this next phase to me is really the most important phase. Now, based on our conversations, only healthy animals are a part of this toxicology, non-clinical safety phase. Now we're going to take this compound that we know works in mice, and we're going to put it in only healthy animals to determine whether or not it's safe enough to put this thing into people that are going to test it before we release it to market. Am I getting this right? Yeah, we use a lot of animals at high doses, and that is a critical point and a highly regulated part of drug development. It's not necessarily to determine if the drug is toxic. We want to see when it will be toxic. In toxicology, we say the dose makes the poison. We need to understand where that toxicity threshold is to be able to understand where to start in humans. That is really what these animals are being used for. What kind of animals are a part of this process? We use a non-rodent and a rodent, and that is non-negotiable, except in certain circumstances. The rodent is typically the rat, sometimes the mouse, and then the non-rodent species are typically the dog, sometimes the monkey. You said one rodent, one non-rodent species, and that's non-negotiable. Who makes it non-negotiable? The regulations. There are a global set of guidelines that harmonizes how drugs are developed, and it's a worldwide non-negotiable. These guidelines say this is how you must bring a drug through, and when you talk about the non-clinical safety part of drug development, it's non-negotiable because if you don't use them, one, it's unethical to the people that you're about to put the drug into in the clinical trials. Two, it's not justified scientifically because you need to be able to understand the drug in a large animal species and in a small animal species. And three, it won't get approved. Who makes these regulations? Is this the FDA we're talking about? It's called ICH. It's the International Council for Harmonization. You have OECD and you have ICH. OECD is a similar type of thing, but it oversees all research. So pharmaceutical, environmental. ICH is specifically in the pharmaceutical space. They're called the safety guidelines, and they talk about what you need to do. So these guidelines aren't really coming from the FDA. You hear a lot of people say, particularly the animal rights extremist groups, right, that the FDA is requiring the use of a non-rodent and a rodent. And maybe that's indirectly true because the FDA isn't going to approve something that wasn't developed under the ICH OECD guidelines. So we have this new FDA Modernization Act, which doesn't functionally change the way things were happening, but it does codify an awareness and a permission to not only focus on research data that comes from animals, that other scientifically valid information that didn't involve animals should also be considered at this phase. But in many cases, people still don't know whether or not these other methodologies that don't involve animals will be as predictive. People are afraid to stray from what they've been doing because they know it works. 
works. We know that the percentage of the time that it actually works and gets to market is fairly low, and maybe that could be improved. But there's a sort of balance between wanting to move forward in ways that don't involve animals and straying from something you know has worked. This is all very complicated, and it's all very current. We're having all of these discussions right now, only nobody knows the process that actually exists to make the drugs. So they're having this conversation around something that they don't understand entirely. So we can't really have a firm idea in our mind about how to move forward because we don't really understand how things work. So let's put the FDA Modernization Act aside for now. Let's stick with how things work currently, how things have been done traditionally. So far, we've developed a compound. We've optimized it. We put it in sick mice to see if it changed their condition. And now what we're going to do is figure out what dose would be toxic. So the non-clinical tox studies are specifically meant to figure out safety margins on anticipated human dose and also to calculate and determine a starting dose in humans in clinical trials and what toxicities we should be looking out for and monitoring in the clinic. All right. So now let's get into this whole toxicology thing with the animals. I understand we have to use one non-rodent species and one rodent species, and I understand why now. That's not just arbitrary. There are small molecules and there are large molecules, and the requirements are different depending on which kind of drug you're developing. But in both cases, the animals that are chosen have to model pharmacologically what is anticipated in the human testing later on. So in small molecule drug development, pharmacologically relevant means that the animals make the same metabolites we expect people to make. In large molecule drug development, pharmacologically relevant means that the drug is going to target the same receptor or something that we expect to be affected in people, right? So they're not just chosen willy-nilly. In small molecule drug development, the rat and the dog tend to be the animals that are pharmacologically relevant in most cases for what it is we're expecting to see in the clinical population. And in the large molecule drug development space, the mouse and the monkey are generally the animals that have proven to be pharmacologically relevant in terms of what we expect to see in the clinical tests later on. Is that correct? Yes. All right. So we're talking about for rodents, rats and mice, depending on whether it's a small or large molecule drug. And for non-rodents, we're talking about dogs and monkeys. Now, these are all healthy animals. These aren't sick animals. And you said something earlier, healthy animals, high doses. And you said the drug makes the poison. What are you actually doing? Are you introducing different levels of this drug to these animals to find this threshold for safety that you talked about? Describe that process. What is happening? What are you doing with the animals? Tell us what that actually looks like. I want you to tell me what the animals actually experience. This is very important because this is a thing most of us are stuck on. So break that down for us. And I want you to be very truthful about this. It's really important for the public to understand the truth. So I don't want you to sugarcoat it. I want you to be very honest about what is involved in determining this margin of safety before we put drugs into human beings. We will always have a control vehicle group, and that is used to compare treated animals back to animals that have not been dosed with the compound. And so we'll have a control group and then three to four dose levels that increase in dose. And the important thing to know is that how we run the study and design the study has to mimic the clinical study design. If we dose the animal daily or weekly, if we dose them orally or IV, that has to mimic what we're going to do in the clinic. We'll have these different dose levels, 
And the whole point is to understand where toxicities are seen. And importantly, if they are dose dependent, meaning that as dose increases and as exposure of the drug in the body increases, does the toxicity and the severity of it increase as well? If we see the same toxicity in the rodent and the non-rodent, it's a pretty good case that we're going to see in the human as well. So that's important. We need to understand the safety margins of what we're anticipating to see in the humans. Typically, we call it a 10x. So we want to be able to say this toxicity was seen in a rat at 10 times the amount we expect to dose it in the human. And that gives us a safety margin when we administer the drug in the clinic. And the goal through all of these studies is to be able to understand the safety exposure relationship of the drug comparing to the efficacy exposure relationship of the drug. Yeah, you don't want to just bombard them. You're trying to really figure out where is that point where the drug's going to work, but it's not going to be overly dangerous. And so the animals are helping you determine that. But still the question is, what do the animals typically experience in this process? There are exploratory studies and there are GLP studies. The GLP studies are the studies that are the definitive studies to determine if the drug is safe enough for humans, meaning the regulatory agencies use data from those studies to make critical decisions about the clinical trials. The exploratory studies support figuring out doses for the GLP studies. Both studies use high doses, but the exploratory studies tend to be higher toxicities because they are using even higher doses because we're trying to narrow down that range and get to a first-in-human safe starting dose. So the exploratory studies are very high doses, healthy animals. This is where you're going to see a lot of the big toxicities in terms of you may see tremors, you may see seizures, vomiting, diarrhea, GI upset. Like we keep saying, the dose makes the poison. So as you continue to go higher, the toxicities become more severe. This is where the animals suffer the most. This is where it is really difficult for technicians and people in my space to navigate I have several friends that I've worked with in my career that have PTSD from this. The things that we've seen and have had to deal with have been very difficult. Uh, There's a lot of guilt that rides on that for us because we are the ones that have been dosing the animals and bleeding the animals. And we have to see them in these, these states. And we know that it's in the greater good for science. And we know that it's going to essentially be helping patients and that's fine, but we got into this career because we loved animals. And, you know, the vets have a lot of involvement in this space as well. And we always talk about how when you go to a veterinarian with your pet, they work for you. But when you deal with a veterinarian in drug development or pharmaceutical companies, they work for the animal. They have final say over what happens with the animal. And it's very highly regulated and it's very highly respected. If the vet says, you're done dosing, this is too much, this is enough, that's it. There's no discussion. It's a non-negotiable. Wow. That's um, really hard. We certainly see things in the basic sciences that are difficult as well. But your career is in this phase of drug development, um, and it sounds like every species that you work with, whether it's mouse, rat, dog, or monkey, some of them will have to experience these things that you just mentioned, 
and you have to be a part of that in order for you to get that threshold that you're looking for for clinical trials. So you see it a lot. Yeah, we have to see it. We want to see it in the name of science. We obviously don't want to see it as human beings. These animals do go through pain and suffering. And me personally, I have thanked every single animal that I've had to put down in my career. And that number is tens of thousands. And it's something that, you know, always weighs on me all the time. Your morals are really challenged in this space. I love the science. You know, I've had a personal history of loss as well. So a lot of the things that I'm doing, I know are going to help people, but there's always the animal part too. What about them? We can't do it without them though. So your, your morals really get challenged and it's not black and white. It's very gray. There's definitely room for improvement and definitely room for change. And it has to be an educated and informed path to make that change. You know, everyone might be familiar with the thalidomide case. People really got hurt because it wasn't tested properly in animals. And a lot of the ways that we do the safety testing now was based off of the thalidomide fiasco. And there are other things that have happened in history as well that have molded how we do things today. This hasn't been mentioned yet, but I think it's important as well, is that every single animal on these studies must be euthanized. Because we need to understand how the drug has gone into them microscopically. So we need to dissect them and we need to weigh their organs. We need to look at them. We need to dissect the tissues. Every single part of the animal is used. It's not just we put the drug in the animal and then they go down and then that's it. No, we look at everything. There's no alternatives. We have... AI, machine learning, computational methods, in vitro assays, we have organized chip, we have all these things. You will never be able to get the same understanding of how a drug is in a living system without putting it in a living system. And at the end of the day, it just comes down to what are your options, animals or humans? That was an amazing explanation. Heartbreaking and very difficult to hear, but I think it's important for everybody who is using medication currently and asking for other kinds of medication to know what the true costs are here. And what it comes down to is people got really hurt before this model for development was put in place, and people decided that they didn't want to take that chance anymore. And so now the animals give us the information we need. And that's, uh, that's a lot. That's a lot. They lose a lot for this. And everybody who does this work loses a lot. And uh, the public doesn't know anything about this. So they clearly have to start showing these very advanced signs of toxicity for us to have the information we need to prevent catastrophes like thalidomide from happening again. But when is enough enough? How much suffering do they have to endure? What are the regulations here? You said the vets come in and they say enough is enough. What is enough? So the high doses that we're talking about those are also justified scientifically, where we've done a lot of work before this to determine what doses we really need to go up to. And then secondly, the animal welfare is very highly regulated. It is covered by SOPs. It is covered by guidelines, regulations, the IACUC, veterinary groups. There's no wiggle room there, and that is a non-negotiable as well. Some animals will die. So if an animal is heading towards death and 
suffering too much, the vet will decide to euthanize it. And there's no discussions around that. That is their call and that's it. It really is a scientifically justified and scientifically driven decision of how far the animals go. The studies are finite duration, so they can be 7 days, 14 days, 28 days, however long. But if an animal is moribund or heading towards death prior to that, then that decision needs to be made. And that has to be based off of, have we gotten enough information balancing that against the animal welfare? So have you ever seen animals get really, really sick, but you still don't have enough scientific information and the vet just says, well, that's it, we're going to euthanize this animal. We can't allow any more suffering, even if you didn't get your information. Have you seen that in your career? Many times, yep. I have seen animal rights groups say things like, in this phase of testing, like for example, they say with dogs that people tape their mouths shut so they can't vomit these drugs up so that they stay in their systems. Is that true? That's not true. A lot of the propaganda that you'll see in the media is clickbait to get likes and follows and attention and things like that. A lot of it is misconstrued, taken out of context. You know, when these animals experience the toxicities that we're talking about here, and this is where you're going to see the biggest toxicities out of the entire drug development timeline, we don't just let them suffer. We intervene. We will give them drugs. If an animal is having a seizure, we'll intervene and give them a drug to stop the seizures. If they're starting to lose weight, we give them gel packs. If they're throwing up, yeah, everything. Pain's a big one too, because if they're in too much pain, the vet will decide to put the animal down. If we can try to intervene and mitigate, we will do it. And even though it might have some impact on the data that we're getting from the animal, we'll deal with that because there's a lot of historical data that we have on leverage as well. So when you see things about, you know, Monkeys are tied up in chairs and dogs are taped their mouths closed and all these things. Animal welfare is a sacred space in the drug development industry. It's not something that we mess with. It's not tolerated by any regulatory agency. It's not tolerated by any drug company. It's not. It's not a thing. So tying monkeys up in chairs and taping dogs' snouts shut and all of that is just a bunch of crap is what you're saying. Yes, that's exactly true. And, and, you know, a lot of people don't want to hear what happens in these studies and they don't want to hear what happens to these animals, but they don't think twice about going and taking an ibuprofen. They're one and the same. This is why I love this podcast. We need to bring it to the forefront and we need to be open and more public about what happens and have people understand that if you are willing to use medication in your life, then you also have to be willing to understand how it got to your hands. You said something else to me when we were talking about this earlier. You said that we go through all of this, the animals go through all of this primarily, right? That's who really goes through it all. So we can get this information. But then you said that it wasn't necessarily as predictive as it could be, not because animals aren't good models, and you already made that clear, but you had issues with the way we do this, the study design. Can you talk about that a little? When a regulatory agency decides what dose a new compound will first be put into humans, that dose is determined off of one study. We have all these other things to determine if it's safe, if it works, but at the end of the day, when the drug goes into the clinical trials, only data from that one species in that one study at that one moment in time at that one company, that's used to determine the starting dose. And so if you get that wrong, you can see the domino effect that that could have down the line. It's not an optimized process. It's one that has been used for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, however long. 
So companies will just continue to do what they've always done. And at the end of the day, pharmaceutical companies exist to make money and to help patients. But when it comes down to which one wins, I think that's very ambiguous. And I think we all know this in our hearts. We just don't want to say it. We don't want to bring it to the forefront. The pharmaceutical industry is a $1.5 trillion industry. And 50% of that is in the United States. What you're saying is we have all of this information that we've collected from animals at great cost to the animals and the people who are working with them. But it all kind of feeds into this one study then that is going to determine what people in clinical trials get for a dose of this particular drug. And it doesn't always translate. And sometimes we find that to be the wrong decision when we put this drug into people. Is that what you're saying? It is, yeah. So these are the GLP studies that we had mentioned before. So if you have a GLP study in a rat and a dog, the most sensitive species, so the one that was more sensitive to the drug, will be the one that's used to determine the starting dose in humans. And it's uncommon that there is a catastrophic event in the clinical trials, but it's not uncommon to start at a dose that is probably not therapeutic. You have to escalate up when you get into humans anyways. In the oncology trials, if you don't pick that right dose, those humans are suffering with their advanced cancer because the dose that you picked is too low and it's not therapeutic. Okay, so we have this point in the process that is flawed and we don't really have a good starting dose for people. And like in the case of cancer, like you said, that means people still die from cancer because we didn't do that part of it correctly. And I guess I'm a little confused about, you know, for all the money that was invested to get to that point, why aren't they addressing that? Why are they still using that model if there's a chance that it's not going to work? Or is it the case that, well, when we do finally put it in humans, even if the dose is suboptimal, we will escalate and finally find a dose. So in many cases, we're still going to get a therapeutic dose in the clinical trials. So the model is, it works in many cases, but not all. So they just kind of keep going with it. You know, the big pharmas, they're making billions of dollars a year. So to them, developing new technology that could make this space more optimal is sort of on the back burner and not really a priority for some. For some some big farmers, I will say they are very keen about it and they are very proactive about it. Other ones are not. If they know that they can run study X, Y, and Z and hit endpoint X, Y, and Z, that's going to move to the clinic and they'll figure it out later. And whatever money is wasted is a tiny, tiny percent of the money that they're going to make off the drug. The drugs get to patients and it costs a lot of money and it costs a lot of animals. It could definitely be done better, but the money, I mean, that, that rules all. Again, morals are challenged in the pharma industry. So most of the time they make out anyway. So they're not investing a lot of time on what they consider to be a small detail. Doesn't sound like a small detail to me. They're not the ones in the rooms. They're not the ones doing the dosing. They're not the ones having to be on the ground with the dog, giving them an injection because they're seizing. They're not the ones having to put these animals down and cut them open. They're not the ones in the room. It's a different ball game when you get up to the top levels of these companies. And when I say companies, I mean the, the bigger companies, right? The gaps between you know the people who do the stuff on paper and the people who do the stuff in real life, there's such a huge gap. You know, they don't see it. So out of sight, out of mind. How do you feel about that? I feel like the career has been rewarding, but it has also taken a lot away from me. 
it's been really tough sometimes. Um, and I, I really don't think about it a lot because like I'm, I'm getting emotional right now, but I really don't think about it a lot because it's too difficult to think about. I mean, all the animals I've had to put down, uh, you know, they say don't name them, but I could never help myself. So they're, you know, I've, I've named them and I've had relationships with them and, even now where I interact less with the animals than I used to, just based on where I am in my career, it still weighs on you. And like I said, I have friends where this just weighs on them so much and they're still in the industry and they're still in the career. I mean, who else is going to be there for the animals, you know, if we're not? And so it is something that really, it does take pieces from us all the time. And it is very frustrating when it's not taking seriously. It is frustrating when the money runs how things are done. You can say that we do this for the patients all day long, but I think it's more true for the people who actually do the work versus the people who are making the millions of dollars off of this. It's almost a smokescreen sometimes, I think. And I mean, it drives me to change it. It definitely puts a a passion and a fire in your heart. I can definitely see how you feel for sure. And now the next thing is you apply for an IND, an investigational new drug application, right? You, you complete an IND and uh, you send that off to the FDA and it has all of this information from all the toxicities we talked about and then this information from this flawed bridge study. And then the FDA says, you know, yes, you can move ahead and test this in people. So the FDA isn't actually questioning this flawed bridge study either. They are not. All right. So... The FDA isn't questioning it either. We can make all kinds of guesses about why that is, right? But one of the guesses might be that it's still working, even though the return on investment is relatively low. You know, 5% of these drugs are going to make it to the public, right? That's a big number when you look around and you see everybody who's surviving disease X, Y, and Z for many, many years uh, relative to how things used to be even just 10, 20, 30 years ago, right? So, but I think there's probably a lot of money and politics at play in all of this. Um, And at the end of the day, it would be better for us as people with moral conscience to do things as well as possible the whole way through. So now we apply for permission with the IND to start looking at people. And then we move into the clinical trials, right? So there are three main trials based on my discussion with you, right? There's the first in human phase, that's phase one clinical trial, right? And this is healthy human volunteers. They get the drug. It sounds like the actual starting dose is sometimes determined at this point based on what they learn from people. And then from there, they have a decision that they've made about how to move forward with dosing. So then we move into phase two clinical trials. Now we have patients that actually have the disease, and we're trying to see whether or not this drug now at the finally decided upon dose for people actually works. Then we move into phase three clinical trials, and that's the point at which things are finalized in terms of how the drug's going to be marketed. What's the best form for commercial production and distribution? Is it going to be a tablet, a liquid, an injection, whatever? What's the optimal dose regimen for release at large scale? And if it makes it through all of that, then the drug is marketed. And then after that, the drug has to be registered. There's a whole system called FAERS, FDA Adverse Reporting System, right? This is sort of phase four, basically. And as long as the drug is being used and it's out there, information is collected about side effects and, and everything else that can happen. And at some point, if necessary, you know, the FDA can pull the drug after it's been in now millions and millions of people and they have all that information. Okay, so that's 
how the drugs get made. What we haven't looked at yet, and this is what I want you to talk about next, is there's all this reproductive stuff that can happen. Um, and we see all these warnings on labels, they don't take this if you're pregnant or tell your doctor if you're pregnant. We haven't discussed any of that yet. Everything we looked at in animals prior to this had nothing to do with reproductive toxicity. That's going to actually happen while we're in the clinical trials with people. So at the same time that people are taking this drug in the clinical phases prior to its release to the public. Yeah, so the reprotox gets done to support usually phase two, phase three, or marketing. So it's late stage clinical studies that we do. And the important thing to note is that there are no reproductive safety studies conducted in humans because it's unethical. So the only data that we have on how this drug will affect reproduction, uh, so fertility, prenatal, postnatal, embryonic development, all of that, the only data that we have to understand that and regulate it is in animals. And so on the label, you will have data from the animal studies themselves. Obviously, it makes sense. But again, to be able to fully eradicate animals, you're not going to be able to do it, especially when you get to the reproductive toxicity, because you can't use humans for that phase. Part of me wonders how well that translates. But we do know that there's a huge amount of biological conservation between species, and we also don't have any other option right now to understand what could possibly be a problem from a reproduction, you know, fetal development standpoint, except for what we can learn from animals that we think mimic our physiology in many important ways. But now we're back to what do the animals experience? How do we learn about reproductive toxicity in animals at this phase? And, and again, I want you to be as honest as you can so that people truly understand what the animals are experiencing so that we can have this information on that label. Yeah, this is uh, probably the most sensitive part of the animal research. So essentially what happens in the reprotox studies, you have to use a rodent and a non-rodent as well. They have to be pharmacologically relevant, same rules apply. For these studies, the rodent is usually the rat or the mouse, but the large animal, the non-rodent, we use the rabbit instead of the dog. And rare cases, we'll use the monkey if it's the only pharmacologically relevant species. There are different types of studies that have to happen. We assess effects on fertility. We assess effects on embryonic development. And we assess effects on both the mother and the embryo fetus child pre and postnatal. These animals are bred. The males will get the drug and then impregnate the females so that we can understand fertility and how that transfers. And then the females, once they are pregnant, will monitor them and dose them throughout their pregnancy. And then we will euthanize the animals before they give birth. The fetuses will still be in her. And then we will dissect and open up the mother and the fetuses. All the tissues are looked at and evaluated we are very thorough with it. We go through everything. Some studies where the fetuses are born and then continue on, that's how we determine toxicity if it goes through the milk. In reproductive toxicity, reproduction in general is still something that I think we don't fully understand. Going back to the thalidomide thing, they thought the placenta was a barrier to compounds, and that is completely false, and that is a big part of why that whole catastrophe kind of happened. And we're still learning new things today, of course. You know, we don't know everything. That's the whole point of science. But these repro studies are designed to give us as much data as possible 
to be able to effectively put warning labels or any sort of indications on the drug label when it does go to market. So we'll put, you know, if you're breastfeeding or want to get pregnant, don't take the drug. For the males, the same kind of thing goes, but this is the bulk of the data that we use. And then the data that we'll get from humans continues to come in from humans after the drug is approved and on the market. But, you know, that's all based on human reporting, and that can be very subjective. We evaluate some of the repro organs during the GLP studies, the testes and the ovaries. If there is a severe toxicity in the reproductive organs during those studies, then we'll, in the clinic, say you cannot get pregnant as a requirement for the patients being enrolled. So that's the whole process in more detail than anyone has ever shared with the public before, ever. So I appreciate that very much. You've been doing this a long time. You have colleagues, obviously, who have done this a long time. How important is it for you folks to kind of have each other, to have a community around this work you do of people who do this, who live this with you? It's a big part of my life, for sure. We are very tight-knit. We go to dinners, we talk, we understand each other on a different level. We've been through things that most people have not or would not choose to go through. So you get really close with people and you form bonds that you just don't find really anywhere else. We don't even have to talk about what we feel because we just know it, you know. It's just the same thing throughout all of us. And it's not something that you can really understand unless you've been there. And I don't want to say that maybe it's downplayed sometimes in the public or in the industry even. People really just don't understand it unless they've been there. I think it's kind of like, and I'm not trying to downplay the military or anything like that, but the people who go overseas and go to war, they experience things that we don't have any idea about. And they come back and they have to deal with that. Um, And it's the same thing for us. I mean, like I said, it's taken pieces for me. The same is true for everybody that I've worked with. And there are people who have been in this industry directly involved with the animals for 20, 30, 40 years. And I don't know how they do it. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts aside from that, that you want to share with our listeners before we close? The only other thing I would add is animals are a critical part of science. You cannot have one without the other. It's just not feasible. And so once we can get over this notion that we can replace and eradicate animals entirely in research, once we get over that and understand that that's not feasible, then we can really start to move forward and try to have a better understanding and education around what is really needed to reduce and refine and replace the animals. And when I say replace, I don't mean complete eradication of the animals. I'm talking about optimal use of the animals. And that's really what it is about. And I think all the propaganda, the media, and the clickbait that you see takes away from that. It's doing a disservice to the things that we actually really need to be focusing on. And it's steering the public away from the things they really need to understand and be educated about. That's one of the most important things that I think people need to really understand is that when you see an article that says the dog's mouths are taped shut, they're not doing anything for those animals. They're taking away from what they could be doing for those animals. And so more education, more information, more transparency about the process, what actually happens, why it happens, and where we can improve, that's what's going to really make the impacts that we want to see, not 
these crazy articles and things like that. And I always try to educate the people around me when these things come out. They'll always ask me too, like, oh, what do you think about this? And I'll tell them exactly what happens because I'm the one doing the work. So you're not going to get a better perspective than that. So listen to those people and reach out to those people because I can guarantee you that it could be hard for us to talk about it. But if you know somebody who's been in the industry who has worked right at the source, they will educate you and they will talk to you about it because it makes them mad too. That's definitely part of the bond that we all share. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself with all of us. And thank you more than that for being who you are and for loving animals and people as much as you do and for doing everything you have done. For people and animals, you'll never know who benefit every day from the incredible work that you do. And those pieces of yourself that you feel have been lost, you will find in those patients who continue to live and suffer less as a consequence of everything you've done. I appreciate you taking the time to speak so candidly about all of this. I agree with you. Let's educate the public and give them the facts. And this was a huge step toward that today. And I haven't found anyone else who's ever been willing to break it down like you. So I think everybody here would join me if they could be in the studio with me right now. And thank you for everything I just thank you for in addition to giving us the straight facts on this so that we can actually move forward and do really good things for animals and stop obsessing over this nonsense coming from extremist groups with agendas that have nothing to do with helping animals. Just like you say, they're interfering with our ability to actually make positive change, to move in the direction of more loving and compassionate approaches for biomedical progress. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Cindy. This was uh, amazing. Okay, look, let's just call this out for what it is and stop the blame shifting. Drug companies want to keep making drugs for their reasons, and we want them to keep making them for ours. It's really that simple. And if you want to point the finger at someone for the animal suffering, that must happen for you to have new medications, whether they're for treating serious illnesses like cancer or relieving your inconvenient case of the sniffles. Then walk straight to the mirror, look yourself in the eyes, and own it. We're in this together. And we all want to reduce the number of animals that have to suffer and die for our health and well-being. So let's drop the fantasies of instant replacement that were being handed by PETA and others, roll up our sleeves, and get to work. I'm Dr. Cindy Buckmaster, your host for Get Real. Thank you for joining us today. If you're enjoying our candid discussions and you want to hear more of the same, then I need you to step up and support us. Your small monthly donation will help more than you realize. Please visit the support link and give what you can. We still have a lot to talk about, and I appreciate your engagement. Up next is the way we anesthetize research animals contributing to the reproducibility crisis. Some surprising food for thought on the next episode of Get Real. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon. <laughs> <laughs>